God is good. We're going to do something that we as a church and, and I, me as a pastor, we've never done before. I'm doing two things I've never done before. I'm going to actually preach a series of sermons, and it's going to be on heaven and Jesus' return and eternity stuff. And I don't know if this is going to be six weeks or six months, but we're going to we're going to go through some stuff that I've wanted to do for a year or more. The Holy Spirit has made it very alive, but I did not have release to actually do it until now. So I promise I won't bore you with all the numbers of Daniel and Revelation and all that. And my take on that's a little different than most people's anyway. And But we're going we're gonna to work our way through all of that. But we're going to start today with heaven. So we're going to talk about heaven. Uh, the Bible says we are citizens of heaven and not of this world. So it would be nice if our spirit was born there. It would be nice to know what home is and what the, what God and the Bible actually say about that and uh, what we're looking forward to. And it is so much fun to uh, think about and talk about. And so we're gonna we're gonna talk about heaven today. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions. A lot of cultural ideas that are completely wrong, a lot of history and stuff that we just need to break off and say, what does the Bible actually say about all this? What is God's home like and, and our heart's home and so on? First thing you need to know is that usually when we talk about heaven, we mean eternity. Well, in heaven, it will be this way or that. You need to know that heaven now is not eternal. The heaven that is now is not the situation it will be for eternity. And usually when we mean, when we talk about living in eternity with God and Jesus and in heaven, quote unquote, that's actually on the new earth that Jesus makes new. The last four chapters of Revelation, actually heaven comes to earth and God lives on earth with us. But that's for several weeks or months from now. We will get to the end of Revelation. But eternity is actually not in heaven. It is on earth that's been made new the heaven that is there now is a temporary situation that's the one we're going to talk about right now is where did the people that i love who died where are they what are they doing what is jesus doing where does he live what's going on there right now amen that's what we're going to do so we're talking about heaven now and this situation is temporary until Jesus returns, rules on earth, straightens everything out, heaven on earth, God lives with his people like he always wanted to from the first day. But for now, we're in some sort of holding pattern. And the heaven that there is, is there now is what is described in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4. Those are the only three passages that describe heaven as it is now, not going to read those this morning. If you want to read them, you can read them on your own. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John, the apostle, saw in a vision that the Holy Spirit gave them, they saw into the throne room of God. All three of them describe pretty much the same thing in a completely different fashion but they all describe seeing God on his throne. They are so overwhelmed and impressed with actually seeing God, they don't describe much else. And what they do describe, they have a very, very hard time giving it language. If you read Revelation 4, John says, I saw something like a sea of glass, and there was these four creatures that were like this, and, and there was... The, it was like gold, and you know we call them the gold, the streets of gold. But John didn't say that; he said it's kind of like gold. But anyway, so Rev, uh, Isaiah six, Ezekiel one, and if you want to read further in Ezekiel chapters ten and forty to forty-eight, also give us a little bit of a picture of the heavenly temple. Uh, Isaiah six, Ezekiel one, Revelation four, and then in Second Corinthians twelve, Paul says that he went to heaven but he wasn't allowed to say what he saw. So he actually doesn't describe anything that he, that he saw. So those are the passages uh, in the Bible. And what is described is that it's God's realm, it's his home, it's his throne and his throne room. So we have the idea that God is infinity, God is everywhere, 
But in a sense, I hate to use this word because I don't want anybody to have a heart attack here, but God has a body. I don't think he looks like an old man with a long white beard, but God has a location where he is actually sitting on his throne. And Isaiah and Ezekiel and John all say they saw him. Yes, God is infinite and everywhere, and he doesn't have physical limitations like we do, but he does apparently have a location. I don't even know how to begin to describe that, but it's in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John. They see God on a throne. He has a personhood about himself. So there is a place where heaven is. It is a place. It's not some unimaginable, infinite, amorphous, undefined realm that doesn't have boundaries. Heaven has boundaries. It is a place. In fact, in, it, John measures it in Revelation. It's 1,400 miles cubed. So it's like North America, 1,400 miles tall. It's huge. But there are boundaries. It is a location. There is a place that is the city that God lives in. And in the end of Revelation, it comes down to earth and God lives here forever. But wherever it is now, it's up. I don't think you're going to jump in a spaceship and go find it. Somewhere in outer space. You've heard me say that before. But Jesus, when he left the earth, went up. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Come down from the Father. Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven. Right? The new Jerusalem comes down to earth. That up and down language is very clear all through Scripture. So, again, I don't think you're going to go fly out in the USS Enterprise and find heaven out there past the last star. I think it means up as in a higher dimension. As in we have three dimensions here in our physical world, length, height, and distance. And, and somehow there's like fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth gen, uh, dimensions. I don't even know, we don't even know how to describe those, how to imagine them. But mathematically they can sort of be proven that there have to be other dimensions. And you get into some really weird stuff when you get into atomic physics and wild stuff, which is not our topic here. But whatever, wherever it is, it's up, whatever that means. Again, I don't think it's like out there past the last star. As John Mark McMillan says, some God in outer space doesn't mean anything to me. We, we have a God that is close and real and present. But somewhere, heaven is up. So what is there? Again, relying on Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Revelation 4, it's God's home. It's his, his throne is there. And John describes his throne like it, it looks like glass. And then he says, there's something like a sea of glass around it. And he doesn't say it's a sea of glass. He said it's like a sea of glass. And this, well, what's that? Well, it's some sort of something that looks like liquid, but it's perfectly clear and it's got rainbow color in it and it's around his throne and then John says there's these four things I don't even know what to tell you they are they're living and God created them so I'm going to call them living creatures <laughs> he says there's four living creatures there I don't even know what they are there's no earthly language for me to describe what I saw but one of them was kind of like a man and one of them's kind of like an ox and one of them kind of like an eagle and one of them's kind of like a lion and you can tell he's just really grasping for language, like how do I describe that in, to earthly people who didn't see what I saw? You read Ezekiel's passage and he's like, I, there's like this wheel and then there's another wheel inside and it's covered with eyes and lights shining everywhere and it's like, I don't even know what to tell you. It's like a, it's like a wheel. I, I don't know what I saw. And people get some crazy ideas about UFOs and all sorts of wild stuff when they don't interpret this as, as here is a man of earth using earthly language trying to describe stuff that has no context on this planet. And uh, people get really off and weird and some stuff. But Ezekiel has trouble seeing, uh, saying it. You know, Isaiah, it's like I saw him. He was high and lifted up. And the high and mighty one of Israel was way above the temple and his robe came down and it filled the temple and 
The angels were screaming holy so loud that it was shaking the doorposts of heaven. And I mean, that's amazing. I mean, John Bevere talks about, you know, in an earthquake, they tell you to stand in a doorway because the threshold of a door is this, one of the safest, stoutest places in a building. And these are the doorposts of the temple of heaven. And the angels are screaming holy so loud that it's shaking the building because they're so impressed with God's beauty and holiness and power. That's how strong their worship is. So they all are just sort of grasping for this language. Isaiah says he sees, he describes the angels as fiery serpents. It's the word seraphim. It means fiery snakes. Well, what's that? Well, it's probably a flame just floating in midair. You know how a flame slithers like a, like a snake. And he's like, it had six wings and they're grasping for language. But what we know is that God's home is there. His throne is there. Jesus is there. Jesus said he is seated at the right hand of the Father with his throne. There are millions upon millions of angels. The Bible says there are thousands upon thousands. And in another verse it says myriads, which means a million times a million. Literally, millions of millions of angels. All of the believers who have died before us and all the faith heroes of the Old Testament are there with God in his throne room. I sort of picture it like the supernaturally gigantic sports arena. Like here's God on his throne and Jesus and all the believers around them in some sort of gathering and everybody's just screaming their worship with all their heart. And it's huge. The tree of life is there. There's a bunch of unearthly stuff, like I said. There's something like a sea of glass, and there's these four living creatures and the 24 elders, whoever they are, sort of like the heavenly senate kind of a deal. It's interesting. There's these living creatures. There's, yeah, there's angels that are only described as seraphim or described as fire. Cherubs are described as wind. They're not given much description at all. There's a library there, the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a book, a record of every single person's life. Every single moment, every detail is written down. The good news for those of you in Jesus is that all of the bad stuff you did is blotted out in his blood. Some of you have more blood and some of you have more text, depending on how you've lived. But a record of every single person's life, that will be pulled out at our hearing. There's histories of the world, the Bible says. There is, in Psalm 56, 8, it says God collects your tears in a bottle. In his library is a bottle of your tears. Some of you, you have gallon jars, and others of us have tiny little perfume bottles. But however many tears you have cried, he knows every single one of them and why, and he values them enough to save them for all of eternity. That's good stuff. Psalm 56, 8, he collects our tears in a bottle. And he knows every one of them. He knows why you've cried. So, actually, the Bible doesn't tell us very much about what is there or actually what is going on. But it does tell us some that's going on there. So we know that God is there ruling the cosmos from his throne and Jesus is with him. And we're going to look in just a minute that every single believer who's died and all the faith heroes of the Old Testament, they're with Jesus, no question. So who's there and what's going on is the next question. Who gets to go to heaven? Well, the answer is only perfect people. I mean it. Only perfect people get to live with a holy God, which is why we all need Jesus. No one with any sin or unholiness, can be with him. That's why we're all in the same boat with Jesus. That his blood has removed all of our sin and washed us away. For those in Jesus, your sin is completely gone. You have no guilt. Or you have all your guilt. It's your choice. There's nothing in between. We serve an all-or-nothing God. There's no purgatory. There's no limbo. There's no scale at the gate where you weigh your good stuff and your bad stuff, and hopefully the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. That is nowhere in the Bible. 
you're not going to meet Peter at a pearly gates and he weighs your good and bad and ain't going to happen. First of all, the gates aren't pearly. They are pearls. Twelve gigantic pearls. And second of all, nowhere does it say Peter's the gatekeeper. Jesus is the door. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 16, he said, I am the door. And in Revelation, John sees a door open in heaven. The door is still open. You can still go through Jesus into God. But only perfect people get access to heaven. Jesus makes us completely sin-free, completely guilt-free, washed white as snow in his blood with no sin guilt at all. Or you can reject that and nothing good you do will balance out the bad stuff you've done. We don't want that. We don't even want to try that. So who gets to go to heaven? Anybody in Jesus. Anybody whose faith in Jesus says that he is God's lamb of sacrifice, his death and his blood pay for my sin, you get in. Totally free. No condemnation. No questions. No raised eyebrows. No funny looks. You are a citizen of heaven. If you're in Jesus. You are a citizen of heaven. So... That happens here in this life. The Bible says very clearly, you get a chance to live, and then you die, and then you face judgment. In that order, and there's no way out of that order. Everybody, every single one of us, will go through that. So, if you choose Jesus now, your sin is gone, you're made holy, you're made righteous by His righteousness, we have access into heaven. So then, this ticker stops ticking. This thing stops, gets tired, and quits. What happens? What does the Bible say happens when a Christian or a believer in God dies? What well, do they go to heaven immediately? The unequivocal answer is yes. In Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross, and the thief right next to him says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is... Jesus didn't say this, but I think that's some of the greatest faith ever displayed, that Jesus is on the cross about to die, and everybody up to this moment has thought he's going to have an earthly kingdom. He's going to be the king of the Jews and chase out the Romans and establish the kingdom of God on earth. People still think that. Everybody thinks he's going to have an earthly kingdom, and this guy on the cross, he's five minutes from dying. This guy on the cross says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is faith. That's amazing supernatural understanding that his kingdom is not of earth and it's never going to be. So Luke 23, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. It's one of those truly, truly. Most assuredly, I tell you, you'll be with me today in paradise. There's no waiting. There's no pause. There's no limbo. There's no uh, out of existence um, sort of it's just you're with Jesus, wherever he is. Second Corinthians 5, Paul writes this. While we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk in faith and not by sight. We are well pleased to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. We know that Jesus is with us wherever two or three are gathered. And he said he would never leave us or forsake us. But Paul says right there, the very obvious statement that while we are in this body, in the flesh, on this planet, we are separated from Jesus. He says, we walk by faith now. By faith and by the Holy Spirit, we are in the presence of Jesus nonstop. But it's by our faith, not by manifest living in a way that when we leave this body, we will be with him. That's a totally different deal. Yes? Paul says, when we're in this body, we are absent from the Lord. And we have to walk by faith and by the Holy Spirit, not by sight. But we will be very happy to leave this body and be with Him without the covering of the flesh, without the blindness of death, that curtain of death that separates us from Him right now. Yeah, by faith we know the curtain's ripped. But here we are. 
We can't see him. We can't talk to him in a way that we will then and there. And Paul says, that's really exciting. But notice that he says, when we are absent from the body, we are present with Christ. Boom. There's nothing else. Step out of this body, you're with Jesus. Instantly, there is nowhere else. There's no place else. There's no time else. You're with Jesus. Next one, Paul also writing in Philippians 1, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the body, this will mean fruit for my labor, but I cannot decide. For I am hard-pressed between the two, desiring to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Notice Paul doesn't say, I can't wait to change the world. No, he says, I can't wait to get out of here. Hello? I understand that some of you have a call on your life, an accomplishment that the Lord has given you to do, and you need to fight to do that. Absolutely. Some of you are fighting the fight of faith for healing because you don't want to leave here on the devil's terms. You want to leave here on God's terms. But this place is not our home. And Paul says, I really, really want to leave here and go be with Jesus. But I stay here because I love my people. I love my family. I love my church. I've got good things that will bear eternal fruit that I need to do. But that is by faith. I stay. There's some false teaching you've got from some people who mean to impart faith to us, but they end up they end up making us care about the things of this life and this body and even this era of time more than eternity. There's a group of preachers that condemns the church for our old hymns that we used to sing, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. It's like, those are just a bunch of get out of here songs and people just waiting for the rapture and can't wait to leave the earth. Yeah! That's what the Bible says. Can't wait to get out of here. And I think there's great error, actually, in what's being taught today about changing the world and, and how the kingdom is to be established. I think there's profound misunderstanding in what the kingdom of heaven on earth now means. Paul says, I can't wait to get out of here. But I'm only going to stay because I love you. And I'm going to stay by faith because I really want to get out of this body and be with Christ. You know, in English, we have the word homesickness, right? You're homesick. I learned this week something I read online that in German, in the German language, they have a word that translates that in English, and it, it literally translates home pain. That I, I'm having pains to be home. But in German, they have a word that doesn't exist in English that means distance pain, that there's somewhere else I want to be. The, it's the opposite of homesickness. Like you're somewhere and you want to go home. Distance pain in German, whatever that word is, means I'm here and I want to be there. I have distance pain in my heart for heaven. And it is very real. And I'm not talking at all about suicide or living in despair or depression or hating the world or the people of it. I'm not talking about that at all. But sometimes I just get so brokenheartedly overwhelmed to just get out of here and go be with Jesus. And according to this scripture, I say, if you are so fulfilled in this life that it doesn't require faith for you to stay, you don't know Jesus. The pull of heaven should be so strong on you it requires faith to stay here. It is self-sacrifice to stay. That's what Paul says. I say, according to this verse, if you are so fulfilled in this life and the things of this world and this life, you care about it so much that you're not interested in heaven or you can't you put it off as long as possible or whatever else, you don't quite know Jesus. Not in the way his greatest disciple did. I can't wait to get out of here and just go be with him. He did not care about changing the world. He cared about whatever Jesus wanted. There's distance pain. <laughs> if we spoke German, whatever that word would be. 
But again, I just want you to notice that Paul says, as soon as I depart here, I am with Christ. Again, if you're not here, you're there. Nothing in between, no time frame, instant. Is from Revelation 3. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So back to the description of what is in heaven. It's God on his throne. Jesus is sitting next to him. And the believers who have died in Christ in the last 2,000 years and all of the heroes of faith of the Old Testament, they are there with Jesus. Jesus said, I grant you the right to sit on my throne with me. They're right there in God's throne room with him instantly the moment they pass away. I know of a pastor from Western Oregon. His name's Henry Groover. In the late 70s, he died in a car wreck with his family. The roof of the, he rolled the van and the roof of the van punctured his skull. And he died instantly. His wife and 15-year-old daughter prayed for him on the highway as a crowd gathered. They prayed for him for, I think, about 15 minutes and he was resurrected from the dead. It was so dramatic that he was like, dead, 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 dead. And then he was alive. There was a forest service ranger that got saved on the spot right there on the highway. He'd been the vehicle behind him and he was helping out. And he's like, this can't happen. This can't happen. He's screaming, this can't happen. <laughs> and uh, he was on his radio as the guy's being resurrected. He's, <laughs> he's talking to the ambulance crew that's coming. And he's like, get here fast. This guy's hemorrhaging bad. He was skull was so damaged that when they did CPR on his chest, it blew blood out the top of his head. And in 15 minutes, he was alive and sitting up and speaking, not bleeding. Or a half hour, I don't know the time frame, but it was very, very fast. The forest four stranger got saved. The ambulance crew, is, he's on the radio. He's like, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this. We don't need an ambulance now. <laughs> anyway, so it's quite a story. Don't have time to go into it all. But I just want to tell you this. Henry Groover says that when the van rolled in the wreck, he did not know he had died. He said, absolutely nothing changed. I felt no pain. I felt nothing. He said, in fact, I got out of the van and was trying to help my kids out, and then I see my body on the road. He said, it was as my soul came out of my body as quick and easy as my foot out of my slipper. There was absolutely no pain, no change in consciousness. I did not change in any way except that I'm not in my body, I'm not in that tent anymore so 30 seconds or 90 seconds or whatever it was before he even realized he was dead that something had even happened to him so he he said i know my body was thrown out of the van after the roll but he said i didn't know that i climbed out of the van like i normally would but it was his spirit so he tells this story he says i want you to know if you've lost loved ones he said, in particularly like damaging ways or traumatic ways, he said, I, I felt no pain. I felt no change of consciousness or anything. I, I heard my wife and kids running around. I saw all the stuff that happened. He said, after they prayed for life, then, my, then I went back in my body. Then it was killer. It was horrendous pain. He said, it felt like blowtorches on the side of his head. Uh, he said, it was horrible. But that passed too. But there was absolutely no change of who he was or what he thought or how he was conscious or anything at all. To be apart from this body is to be present with Christ. He was actually at one point, he was pulled off to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm sending you back. And I'm not going to go into the story. There was a discussion between him and the devil, actually, uh, before Jesus sent him back. And, and then he, um, he ends up back in his body and he was healed and alive. So to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. You don't change who you are. You'll not get lost. Let's put it that way. Jesus will take care of you, whatever it is. You will not get lost. You'll, he'll, be, he'll be present right there. Uh, a much more sobering, serious question, I guess, that people ask and really honestly want to know is, do babies go to heaven? Do little children go to heaven when they die? And I've been raised in church and told yes all my life. But nobody could ever tell me why or how or where that was in Scripture. And sentiment will get us nowhere with the truth. And I don't want people's ideas, oh, God is merciful and he wouldn't send a baby to hell. 
Well, I believe that too, but where did he say that? So I asked him years ago. Well, the scripture that I've always heard growing up in church is when this question was addressed, what about miscarried babies or aborted babies or children that die young? And if this doesn't apply to you, it does to somebody you know. And you can you listen close here. You can, you can minister great peace here. And if this does apply to you, you, you just, just wait. It's awesome. The verse I've always been given was from Isaiah in his Emmanuel prophecy. He says something about before the child is old enough to choose the right and reject the wrong. So some people in some churches teach that there's this age of accountability where children are aware of sin and guilt and are able to make their own choice of faith in Jesus. And I believe that. Even secular child development class in college will tell you that there's a moral awareness that happens in a 9 or 10 or 11-year-old kid. Where we're all born in sin. You do not have to teach a two-year-old how to be selfish, how to be a brat. But you know also that kids have an innocence about them also that adults don't have. They don't fully, really understand right and wrong. That's why we have to teach them right and wrong before they reach that age. But Isaiah speaks of this child that will grow and before he knows enough to choose the right and reject the wrong. So there are churches and Christians that believe in this age of accountability. Well, if a child dies before they've got conscience development and moral development, then God wouldn't punish them in hell. But that still doesn't answer my question because where does God say that he won't? I don't want him to, but where does he say? And just out of the blue one day, two or three years ago, Jesus just dropped this in my spirit like a bomb. I wasn't asking for it in that moment or trying to think it up. The Holy Spirit told me this scripture, and I got to back up before we go to it, and I got to give you this one truth principle here that I live by, and then it, then the scripture will make sense. So let me back up and say this: that the Bible is eternal. It says all through that it is the word of the Lord stands forever. That it is the everlasting word of God, it is the eternal word of God. This is the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? This is eternal, forever and ever. This is the laws of God, the commands of God, the Word of God. In Psalms it even says that He has exalted His Word above His own name. That this is the supreme authority of the kingdom of heaven and God can't just pull out His God badge and do whatever He wants. Even He has to obey this. Because He has bound Himself by His own Word. This is the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. You know you hate people in Washington, D.C. that ignore our Constitution and think they're above the law, well, God and Jesus will never, ever, ever do that. They submit themselves to their own word, and they will always do what they said. Hello? This is the eternal word of God. This is the Constitution of the kingdom of heaven, and it is eternal. It's not just for this life and this world. It is in heaven, too. Okay? So every word in here is recorded for a reason because it will stand forever. And when you and I meet Jesus on his judgment throne and we stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ, this is what we will be judged by. So as we go through our life, Jesus will go through my life and everything I did wrong, he will show me where in the word it says don't do that. And everything that I obeyed and did right, he will, will be judged by this word. Right? Okay? So, everything in there is there for a reason and everything in there is eternal. John says... There's so much more to write about the life of Jesus that isn't written that if we wrote it all down, the world itself could not contain the books. So what is written in here is eternal on purpose because there's a lot of other stuff they could have written about that they didn't because it was Jesus' earthly ministry and not his eternal ministry. You with me? So look at this. From the eternal word of God, the judgment that will forever stand from Mark 10. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them. Do you get it? That is not just a statement for that day on the calendar in history. That is the eternal Word of God. And every baby that's miscarried or aborted or a young child that dies, that is the word Jesus speaks when their soul leaves their body. Let that little child come to me. Do not forbid them. 
For such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, truly, truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and blessed them. That is the exact description of what Jesus does every time a baby is miscarried or aborted or a young child dies. He speaks that word because only this is eternal. He speaks that word, let that little child come to me, and he brings them on his lap and he hugs them and kisses them and welcomes them into his home. That is the eternal word of God. It's not just for that day with those specific kids. It is for every little child. Jesus says, let them come to me. So if you've miscarried, if you had an abortion before you came to Jesus, if you know somebody that did, if you have a young child that died, the word there, little children, is a very specific word for toddlers, kids under 8, 9, 10 years old. doesn't mean youth. Or, they have a word for youth or teenager. In fact, at 13 in Jewish culture, you're a man and a woman, right? At the bar mitzvah at 13. So whatever Jesus means, it's younger than that. There's an innocence, even though we're all born in sin, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. That's very rock-solid promise. Couldn't get any clearer than that. I'm also very hopeful about this passage. There's a part in, in Jesus' life where the disciples get upset that some other people are preaching about Jesus. They say, hey, you're not his disciples. Shut up. We're his disciples. They go and tell Jesus, these other people are preaching about you and casting out demons in your name. And he says, let them do it. If they're not against me, they're for me. Jesus said, in the eternal word of God, if they're not against me, they're for me. I'm very hopeful about that verse. Because <laughs> you know, living in a Western culture like America or Europe where Christianity is the historical norm, and there's a lot of people in our valley who say they're Christians and they just mean they're not Buddhists or Mormons or Muslims or whatever else. And they say they're Christians and we know they're not, but they're not against him. I know that those who specifically reject Jesus, they hear the gospel and they say, no, I don't want that. I'll live my own life. Thank you very much. That's against Jesus. There is no other paradise for sin, but there are others that, think they're good people, like, oh yeah, Jesus and I are cool. I'm hopeful. <laughs> he's he's really gracious. I'm hopeful. That's all I'll say. If they reject Jesus, there is no answer. But he said, if they're not against me, they're for me. He didn't say if they're not against me, they're neutral. He said, if they're not against me, they're for me. Next question I, some of you have is, so, so the people in heaven, my loved ones, historic Christians through time, what are they doing? I told you this before, but when I was a kid, I didn't want to go to heaven. I would never thought that, but I definitely did not. want. I knew I didn't want to go to hell, so I had to do what mom, dad, and the Bible told me to do. But I really didn't want to go to heaven because my picture of heaven was just millions and millions of years of this. Oh. Oh, yes, Jesus, you're great. We love you. Anybody want to go to Taco Bell? <laughs> it was, I don't know where I picked it up, but my, my picture was this brainless Muslim-style worship where they're on their knees and they're just bowing and they don't know why. And I don't know where I got that, but that was my picture, was this meaningless, eternal, never-ending nothingness is what I thought. And I knew everybody told me it would be good, but I wasn't so sure. And I've since learned that heaven's going to be pretty cool. But what are they doing there? And what is it like? Well, there's a lot of bad ideas, false teachings of both the church and the world and all kinds of stuff. But Matthew 9, Jesus comes into the bedroom of the girl who has died and her family's all crying. And he said, she's not dead, she's asleep. Well, she was dead, but Jesus said she's asleep, and then he raised her from the dead. In, let me get my references, 1 Corinthians 11 and 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul speaks of Christians who have died 
and he says they're asleep. So four times in the New Testament, there's the word sleep referring to Christians in Christ who have died. Well, what does that mean? It means this body quit ticking, but Scripture also says very clearly that those in Christ will never die. Why? Because we already died. We killed our old selves in the waters of baptism, and we raised up with Christ a new creation. The old John is already dead. The old Mitch is long gone. The old Cale died many years ago. And we are already alive in Christ, and we're not going to die in the sense of cease to exist for all eternity. We're not going to die ever again. So this body may go to sleep. This body's going to get buried in the dirt, but my spirit, your soul, will continue on in the very next nanosecond exactly like you are now. You will not die. There is no other state. So Paul and Jesus say it's like sleeping. But that can only refer to this body that gets buried in the dirt because Jesus in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man and Abraham, they're all very much alive and awake and talking to each other. Even across from heaven to hell, they're talking to each other. So they're not in some state of limbo or unconsciousness. They haven't joined the great cosmos and the energy of the universe and they're just... <sighs> we will be who we are forever. And we don't stop for even a half a second when we step out of this tent. We're, remember, we're only camping. This is a tent, and we're camping here. When you go out of your tent, you don't change who you are. You don't cease to exist. You just crawl out of your tent, and that's all that's going to happen. We're, the Bible says we're sleeping. In the Old Testament, it specifically says when a king of Israel would die, it says he slept or he rested with his fathers. In Genesis, when Isaac and Jacob and Joseph die, it says, and he rested with his fathers. So, in heaven, specifically the believers in Jesus who are with God, we're living with, as family. Good and bad news. You will be family for all of eternity. Jesus did say we will not be married, but we are family. We will live with our family as families nothing about who we are will change revelation makes it very clear that every tongue and nation and tribe and ethnic group will be there you're going to be male or female for all of eternity you're going to have the color skin you have for all of eternity you're going to speak the language you speak for all of eternity you are who you are in fact you will be more you there than you are here because you hold that back hello it's Satan that makes people kill their culture and lose their gender and fight against who God made us to be. God made us to be a kaleidoscope, and he enjoys it. And we're not going to be all become Jewish. We're not going to all magically speak Hebrew and, and none of that. You are who you are for all of eternity. People get some weird ideas about this stuff. We're not going to be the same. We're going to be more different there than we are here, but we will be more unified there than here. However that works. We will be the kaleidoscope of color and variety and beauty that God made us to be. So the Bible says they're sleeping, and it says that we're, they're sleeping as families, sleeping with their fathers, resting with their fathers. One thing you will not be is you will not become a cherub with wings and a harp and float along on a cloud like a Sherman or a Hallmark commercial. You're not going to become this fat little baby. You're not going to grow wings. You're not going to become short and fat unless you already are. <laughs> it will not be mindless, endless worship forever. It will. It's not an all-inclusive spa resort. Uh, it's not an all-you-can-eat buffet with no health problems afterwards. Jesus did say, like I said, that we're not going to be married, but you're going to be who you are. You're not going to change gender or become something else. Uh, you are who you are forever. You're not going to be born again, again in any way. You are already as born again as you're ever going to be. You are already a citizen of heaven. You are already a spiritual person. And if you're disappointed by that, I say suck it up and live with faith. 
You're like, well, this is all there is, really? No, suck it up and live. Defeat that sin. Have some victory. You are as born again as you're ever going to be. There isn't a third birth. There's only the second birth. If that disappoints you, get some faith and live like the citizen of heaven that you are. All right. You will not be changed from who you are in your heart, I mean. Now, you will be cleaned up. Health problems will be healed. Your body will be fixed and you will get a new one. But it is this body. You're in this body is who you are for all eternity. Paul compares it to a seed that's put in the ground. And genetically, the acorn is exactly the same as the oak tree. But their bodies are different. But they are the same. The kernel of corn is genetically exactly the same as the stalk of corn that grows from it. But their bodies are different. But it's still the same being. You with me? So Paul says this body will be put in the dirt and like a seed it will sprout and we will grow a heavenly body. But it is this body so much so that Jesus in his resurrected body still had the holes in his hands from his first body. Hello? He didn't look alien or angel or abnormal because the men that walked with him on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection didn't think he was anything other than a man. Right? They weren't screaming, oh, we saw an angel or it's an alien or what is that? It was a man. But one of those two men is his own uncle and he didn't recognize him because his resurrected body was different. We know it was. He could you know, appear and disappear out of the room. But, but Jesus says to his disciples when they think they're seeing a ghost, he says, look, I have flesh and blood. Does a ghost have flesh and bones like me? He says, I have flesh and bone. And he ate food at least on two occasions. And it was so much, his new body was so related to his old body that he still had the holes in his hands. You are you. And you will always be you. Sorry. Live in faith. You'll be perfected and cleaned up and ignorance will be replaced with knowledge and sickness and pain will be replaced with wholeness. And, but you are you. Forever. Especially if you're born again. If you're not born again yet, you need to know there's a huge change that can happen to who you are. God can make you new. We call it being born again. It's such a huge change. You start like all life all over again. But if you're born again, you're born again already. And it isn't going to happen a third time. So, we get this new body, and Jesus' body after his resurrection is a picture of that. But, we're not born again as in changed who we are. We're already changed, born again, required to live by faith. There are lots of testimonies now, books and movies and YouTube videos and 700 club segments and whatever else, where people claim to have died and gone to heaven and either got shocked back to life or prayer resurrection or it just happened and whatever. And they have all sorts of claims about what is there and who's there and what it's like. And they talk about the colors and the light and the clothes and the food and what they, the music they heard and all this stuff. I would just say this about those books and movies and claims. When Jesus came up from the grave Easter morning, and Mary saw him. And then she went back to the apostles and said, I've seen Jesus! And they didn't believe her. That afternoon, Jesus appears in the room. And the first thing he does is chew them out for not believing Mary. He said, it wasn't Mary that you didn't believe. It was me. Because I told you I would be back in three days. And you didn't believe me. And when Mary actually saw it, you didn't believe her. So if somebody, a young child or a believer in Christ, who has some heart attack or drowns or whatever, they go into a coma and they claim they saw heaven and Jesus and then they come back and they tell us about it, if it matches, believe it. Because Jesus said it's there. Where else do you expect them to have gone? Hello? 
The man is a Christian. He had a heart attack. He's gone for 10 minutes. He comes back and says he saw Jesus. And all the other Christians say, I don't know if I believe that or not. What do you believe? Come on. So the objections are this. One person will say, well, Paul says that when he had his vision of heaven, it was not lawful for him to speak of it. Yeah, him. But the angel told John to write it down and tell everybody. So in Paul's experience, Paul was told, you cannot say what you saw. In John's experience, he was commanded to tell everybody what he saw. Amen. So, some people come back and they say, I saw this or that. I believe it. Obviously, yes, we test the spirits, we weigh the prophecies, and we, we compare it to this, and it better make sense and bear witness with the Holy Spirit and all that sort of stuff. Yes, 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 yes. But then the other objection is, well, it doesn't line up with what the Bible says about heaven. Okay, right. If we're going to be that legalistic, then we have to throw out Ezekiel and John because they don't match Isaiah. Isaiah, roughly five or six hundred years before Jesus, has a vision. He sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple. He describes what he saw. A hundred years or so later, Ezekiel sees into the throne room and what he sees is not exactly what Isaiah saw. It's additional information. And if we're going to be legalistic about it, we can't believe Ezekiel or John because they don't perfectly match Isaiah. And then 600 years later, John sees something and it doesn't contradict Ezekiel or Isaiah, but it isn't the same. It's additional information. So if somebody writes a book or there's a movie, Heaven is for Real, or The Boy Who Came to Heaven and Returned, or it's all kinds of different stories and stuff, I say as long as it doesn't contradict this, we can believe it. If somebody comes back and says, there is no hell, everybody goes to heaven, no. We're not believing that because that directly contradicts this. But if somebody wants to come back and tell about the grape that they ate, praise the Lord. What harm is that going to do? That doesn't contradict anything. It does not false doctrine. You know, are they, you know, whatever. I saw Jesus playing with children or, you know, whatever, you know. People have some wild claims. And I don't believe every one of them. But for the most part, where else do we think they went? Okay. I can see that most of you are with me. I'm not going to make any doctrine out of what these people say um, because it's not in the Bible. But Jesus was mighty upset that the apostles didn't believe Mary's testimony when she said that what he said would happen happened. So Jesus said there's a heaven and it's described for us and when there are believers that see it or have been there and come back I don't want my mode of operation to be doubt. I want it to be faith. Even the Bereans, which are given as the ones that, oh, they tested everything in the Word. It says they received it with joy and then they checked it out. They didn't receive it with skepticism and check it out. They received it with joy and checked it out. They believed it, unless the Bible said otherwise. Cool. So... I'm going to skip over intentionally the testimonies of people's experiences and this boy's story and that man's story and all that. I just want to say what the Bible, what does the Bible say? It says they're sleeping, but then Jesus says they're, and we're going to read the story in just a minute. Jesus says very clearly they're alive and awake and talking to each other. So what does the sleeping uh, uh, refers to their body and their soul and spirit are at rest in God's presence. But it is not true. This is a big one. It is not true that there are no tears in heaven now. The verse, he will wipe every tear from every eye, is in the last chapter of Revelation. After Jesus has made everything right and hell is locked up, there's heaven on earth and everything is done. There, then there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. But I tell you, God cries hard. Now, he feels more intensely than any creature he created. And he has some intense feelings.
feelings, both anger and brokenhearted sorrow about what we are doing here. Heaven is not a roll on the floor, drunken laughter, Holy Spirit party. At least not all the time. Because God is on his throne and things in heaven are affected by what is going on on earth. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He is seated on his throne next to his father, but his attention is on earth because he is the ultimate intercessor. He is the ultimate prayer, and he are watching very closely what's going on on earth and praying about that, talking to God about that. What are the people in the throne room doing? Hebrews 12.1 says they are the great cloud of witnesses. Seated on thrones with Jesus, so they are interceding for us also. They see us. They watch. They know the situation on earth. Your great-grandpa is watching you. He sees what you're looking at at the computer in the middle of the night. Your grandma knows how you're talking to your husband. I don't think they know everything. I don't think they have a spotting scope and they're looking down at earth. But whatever the Holy Spirit allows them to see, Hebrews 12.1 says they are witnesses of our lives and they are cheering us on and saying, We did it! You can too! Trust us! It is so totally worth it! We know that you can't see this up here, but believe it, it is so totally worth whatever you have to go through down there. They are the great cloud of witnesses. They are watching us. They are praying for us. They are worshiping God nonstop. You see that all through Revelation, that there's worship and prayer going on. But not in this unrealistic That's the best word, this unrealistic expectation that everything is perfect for them. Look at Revelation 6. I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. The martyrs who have been killed for their faith in Jesus are under the altar. They are under the very mercy seat of God where the literal blood of Jesus is poured out and they are not at peace. They are screaming at God, how long are you going to let this go on? The Iraqi Christians who have been beheaded in the last six months for their Christian faith by ISIS, are not in heaven asking God to forgive them. They are screaming at God, Why are you not taking vengeance? Justice is not done! What are you waiting for? Now, of course, they're in faith, and they're in peace, but it says they are crying out with a loud voice, demanding justice for their lives. Everything in heaven now is not perfectly resolved. In fact, Hebrews 11 says that their lives are not complete without our faith. I don't even begin to understand what that all might mean. But they have a justice that is not yet performed. They are not satisfied. There's profound misunderstanding of the love of God versus the judgment and vengeance of God. But vengeance is not unloving. God owns it. Only perfect love can create perfect justice. It's never our place to take vengeance. But it is not unloving or unforgiving to want it. Because even in heaven, in the perfect presence of God, these people are not satisfied till God creates justice. Till He takes vengeance on them. There are tears in heaven now. Hot ones. Of intercession and prayer on our behalf for God, for His kingdom. Jesus, how long are you going to let that go on? Do you see what's happening down there? Let's go. Let's go rescue your bride, Jesus. Let's go make it right. Get on your horse. Let's go. Come on. So, what are they doing? 
They're worshiping intensely. They're praying intensely. They're watching us. They're cheering us on. They are crying for God to rise up off of His throne, send Jesus back, and make everything right. Stop the suffering. Stop the war. Stop the disease. Stop the abuse. Jesus, establish Your throne for once and for all on earth. Make it right. Go back. Rescue Your Lady. But even in whatever tension exists there in their intercession for us, that they are in the presence of God, but they are watching us and praying for us, they are even, as this verse shows, I don't know if angry is maybe too strong of a word, but they're, they, they are crying out, they are demanding justice to be done on the earth. Even in that, they're in perfect peace. Total love completely at rest, trusting God the Father exactly like Jesus does. That we're waiting according to the Father's will for the perfect moment for Him to return and set it all right. Jesus' parable from Luke 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue and I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus was talking about himself there about rising from the dead they won't even be if they don't believe the scriptures they won't be persuaded even when i rise from the dead but the scripture here this parable jesus shows us a picture of whatever another fact or another detail about whatever the other side of death is that there's abraham and lazarus in paradise and the rich man who ignored his homeless neighbor at his gate goes to hell they are alive, they are conscious, they are themselves, they remember their previous life, they can talk to each other, they remember their family back on earth, and the rich man is screaming at Abraham, please help me. And he says, send Lazarus over here with a drink of water. And Abraham says, no, you know we can't go across this anyway. Psalms speaks of being able to look over the edge of heaven into hell. You know, look, look down, I don't have that scripture prepared to give you the reference, but it's what it says. You know, look over into the pit. So, and Jesus shows this here too, that they can see from heaven to hell and they can talk to each other across, but it's fixed, a, a, a division. It's also fascinating to me that Abraham says those from here who want to go over there can't. That's amazing that he, the people in heaven want to show mercy to the people in hell because it's just so terrible. That's wonderful. That is, that's beautiful. But then Abraham says it can't. There's, there's that, veil or that division between us and you know we can't cross it and you can't cross it and then the rich man begs that abraham send lazarus back from the dead to this is not the lazarus that did come back from the dead this is just jesus using that guy's name but this is a made-up story but jesus is giving us a picture of the afterlife he says send him back and tell my brothers hell is real and jesus says through Abraham in the story, Jesus says, no, nope, they're not even going to believe if somebody resurrects from the dead. Which we know is true. Speaking of himself, that there are people that don't believe. That 
even in our day, this story, let's translate this to 2014-15. If somebody got on national U.S. TV and said, I am Robin Williams, and I've been in hell for four months, and you all need to follow Jesus because it's real, and I've been in fiery torment since I killed myself, nobody would believe it. It's a hoax. That's stupid. There is no afterlife. A lot of Christians wouldn't believe it either. But what Jesus said is true. People's hearts are so hard. Jesus said if they don't believe this, they wouldn't believe it even if Ron Williams came back from the grave. Jesus said, believe this and live. But the main point I want to get out of this story, we're not talking about hell today, that's a different future Sunday. Well, the main point I want you to get is that what Jesus calls heaven, calls it Abraham's bosom. Abraham is the father of our faith. He's a picture of Father God. And bosom just means heart. That whoever you love that's gone on before you, that was in, that was saved in Jesus, they, Abraham tells the rich man, he said, you had all your luxuries in life, now you're getting torment. Lazarus had an evil in life, now he lives in comfort in my heart. That's what Jesus says through this story. I know that's not his exact words, but that's the point of the story. That, the, that Lazarus, the man who was saved through faith in Jesus, he, anybody that you love that has gone on before you, you're wondering what is their existence, whatever else it is, they live in comfort in the very core of God's heart. And comfort doesn't mean luxury and pampering. It means peace, joy, no troubles. And so whatever their intercession is and whatever they're lacking in their claim calls for justice and, and, and whatever they're doing in like Jesus, let's go, let's, let's establish the kingdom, let's take your, take your place, Jesus. Whatever they're doing in that, it's not in frustration. It's not in unforgiveness. It's not in um, unlove. It is they're in total peace, living in comfort of the very heart of God. Abraham's bosom. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for your word, for your teaching to us, for your revealing of your glory, of your home, of your kingdom, of your throne. Lord, we love you. We want to be with you. We want to be with you every day here in your presence. It is where we belong. And we want to be with you for all of eternity. Thank you for the price that you paid, for the blood that you bled to wash our sins away so that we can come boldly to our Father's throne room through a new and living way. You tore the curtain of your flesh and you bled out the Holy Spirit and poured that upon us and filled us with life and your own righteousness. And we can live in faith and in boldness toward God that you have made us right, that you are our Savior, that you are our door into heaven. We love you, we bless you, we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.